You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. We're in the book of Nehemiah. So if uh, you can find that book, if you don't know where the book of Nehemiah is, use your table of contents. It's okay to use that. Um, Or if you're using a phone to look it up, you just keep scrolling. It's number 16 in the Old Testament table of contents. By the way, if you don't have a Bible in book form and you want one, um, we have them outside in the lobby, uh, right outside of where the Connect desk is. You can use it on a Sunday, or if you just want to take it, it's our gift to you. We'd love nothing more than to put a Bible in your hands if you don't want to just use one on your, on your phone. If, if you weren't here last week, let me review a little bit, because I know some of you weren't, uh, making sure that we're all sort of at the same starting point. First of all, what is Nehemiah? Well, Nehemiah, and I pointed this out last week, is the last book of history in the Old Testament. Even though it shows up, like I said, as number 16 out of 39 books, it's actually chronologically, historically, at the end of the Old Testament. What happens next is the coming of Jesus. So it kind of leads into that 400 years of, of silence. We call it the silent 400 years or the intertestamental period. That's Nehemiah. And so um, somebody asked me last week, by the way, why, why do we do it that way? Why, why would it not be number 38 or 39? The reason is, certainly in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis opens things up, and, and Malachi is certainly the last book of the Old Testament. But um, what we've done is we've grouped certain types of literature together. So books of history, books of the law, for example, wisdom literature, Um, the poetic books uh, like the Psalms and the Proverbs and so on, Uh, the minor prophets and the major prophets. Nehemiah is a minor prophet included in a group of 12, not because it's less important, but because it's shorter than the major prophets. Uh, books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, for example. And so that's that's the tendency. We group group them together in that way. Same thing in the New Testament. Um, Probably the first New Testament book that was written, if we get it right, if we can understand it right, is the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, And uh, the reason for that is because in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul is talking about the resurrection there, and he says, writing 1 Corinthians 15, some of the people that saw the resurrected Jesus, you can go talk to them for yourself. Um, And so that's why we think, why historians and and biblicists think that the book of 1 Corinthians and first. But that's just a side point. Let's go back to, to Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah uh, essentially uh, tells of the rebuilding of the walls and homes and the temple beforehand. I, it doesn't take place in Nehemiah, but in the book of Ezra, that had been destroyed. Destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., But what takes place when the Persians take over from the Babylonians as the world empire under a man named Cyrus, King Cyrus, who was moved by God, he allowed the Jewish exiles to return to Jerusalem. They had been taken out of Jerusalem and the areas surrounding the city, but he allowed them to return and begin the rebuilding process. That happened in three phases and over a hundred years. Phase one was... um, led by a man named Zerubbabel, who took a remnant back to the city and rebuilt the temple. You can read about that in the first part of Ezra. The second phase of this restoration process began or continued on under Ezra, who was a priest. 
but his was a restoration focused more on a spiritual dynamic of, of the people. Ezra was committed to knowing the Word of God and teaching the Word of God, and you can read about that at the end of, of the book that bears his name. And then there's Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes along, and he takes it upon himself to give leadership to the rebuilding of the walls and the homes of Jerusalem. But he wants to do much more than that. He has a greater goal in mind, um, but that's his, that's his focus. What we looked at at the beginning of chapter 1 last week is that Nehemiah hears of the bleak news that the walls and homes still hadn't been repaired in Jerusalem, and because of that, the people in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas were in trouble and they were in disgrace. Trouble because walls, as you can, you can imagine and know, bring protection, but disgrace because the broken down walls were a constant reminder of the rebellion of the people. As I said last week, the broken down walls represent a broken down people. Nehemiah's initial response to the news before doing anything else, and we spent a lot of time looking at this last week, was to pray. He prayed. That's essentially what chapter one includes. He prayed for God's forgiveness, if you remember, and he grouped himself in that. Also, he prayed for God's grace. His prayer in chapter one ends in verse 11. Just put your eyes down into that verse where he says, please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. This verse, and why it's important, gives us the first major hint that Nehemiah is gonna do something. We get little tidbits of hints before this, but this, is, this makes it very clear that he's gonna take it upon himself, and so he prays, he mentions this man in verse 11. Who is that? That's King Artaxerxes. He's taken over the royalty. He reigns in the place of Cyrus. And Nehemiah writes and prays that at the time I was the king's or Artaxerxes cupbearer. Great gig. If you could get this gig, great gig. Highly paid, highly revered, highly esteemed, highly influential. A cupbearer's position rested, and you can imagine this, rested on the trust of the king. You had to be tight with the king. The king had to trust you because part of your job was to drink wine and test it for poison before passing it on to the king. So you have two kind of choices or two kind of avenues that would take place if you're the cupbearer. You taste, taste the wine and you pass on a great glass of wine. That's good. That's a win to the king, king loves you, or you take a, a sip of a glass of wine and you die. And you don't pass on the cup to the king or the glass to the king. Either way, you're a hero in the king's eyes. And that's what Nehemiah's job was. Nehemiah, Nehemiah's specific prayer in verse 11, if you look back, was give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. What is he talking about here when he says success and compassion? Well, Nehemiah is referring to the allowance that he hopes for, prays for, that would come from Artaxerxes that would allow him to go back to Jerusalem and help with the restoration of that city. And he says, please, give me today success. 
Well, that today, that one day turned into 120 days, four months, which takes us to verse 1 of chapter 2. Let's read the first two verses. During the month of Nisan, this is four months after chapter 1. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why do you look so sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. I was overwhelmed with fear. If you and I were to work together for any length of time, you would probably hear me say at some point that there is a wrong time to do the right thing. Meaning just because there is a need and just because there is a call doesn't mean that something should happen now. This is one of the things that I've had to remind potential church planters about over the years. Because what you will hear from potential church planters is, Norm, there's needs. Churches are shutting down. People need to hear about Jesus. And Norm, I'm called. And I feel it deep down into my gut. Need and call. And I don't disagree with both either, I should say. There is need. Churches are shutting down. Three to 400 churches in Canada shut down every year. So churches are shutting down. People need to know about Jesus. And I think a call is important. In fact, I think a call is first and foremost of importance. Because sometimes things go so bad in ministry, if you didn't have a certainty of your call, you would start selling cars. Nothing wrong with selling cars, by the way, if you're a car dealer. <laughs> But that doesn't mean the time to start is today. A call and a, a, a need doesn't make you ready or the time right. Just think about if we use those prerequisites for surgeons today. Somebody comes along and says, I feel called to be a surgeon. And there's great need. Okay, start cutting. You wouldn't say that. You need time, you need preparation, you need education, you need a residency. And perhaps at that, at that time, you'll be, you, you'll be ready. You need to wait, you need to wait. But here's what you would hear, hear me also say. Don't waste the wait. Prepare yourself. Nehemiah waited 120 days, but he didn't waste the wait. We know that he prayed. We know that he fasted. We know he repented. But he also was prepared with a response if the king ever asked him, hey, Nehemiah, what's up? And that moment came in verse 2 when the king asked him, why do you look so sad? Nehemiah writes that he was overwhelmed with fear at that point. Why? Well, because it wasn't allowed for the king's servants to be anything but cheerful in his presence. That's why. It was bad protocol. Having a bad day? Tough. Leave it at home. Be cheerful in his presence. But here's the thing that stands out about verse 2. Nehemiah knew this. But the fact that Nehemiah, in spite of knowing this, couldn't hide his sorrow... Shows, shows just how, how heavy the state of Jerusalem weighed on him. Nehemiah's four-month waiting period, saturated in prayer and preparation, had led to this moment, and he responds in verse 3, May the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? 
That's his response. There's something about his response, though, that sort of bugged me as I prepped for our time this week. Um, and I hope I'm not neat-nicking it too much. But the question is, from the king, hey, Nehemiah, what's going on, man? Why are you so sad? And his response is, and I'll read it again, the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins. What, why? Why does he focus on the burial plots of his ancestors? And he doesn't mention walls. He doesn't mention walls or homes. He actually doesn't even mention the city of Jerusalem specifically. Now, maybe Artaxerxes knew all that already. So maybe, again, I'm neat-nicking this too much, but I don't think so. And I don't think so because I don't think this is accidental in what Nehemiah says to him. And, and here's why. I discovered in my prep this week that for the Persian people specifically, the place where your ancestors were buried was to be given the greatest of respect. Meaning to mess with a, a burial plot or an area of, of where people are buried, your ancestors, your family, was a no-fly zone. You didn't, you didn't mess with it. And I think we get this in part today, not to the point where we would place ourselves with, with Artaxerxes and the Persians, but if you had someone in your family buried in a cemetery and you drove by the cemetery and there was garbage everywhere and, and there was uh, graffiti on tombstones and there was weeds where grass used to be, you'd be bummed out. You'd want something done. Like those places should be kept nice. Our ancestors are buried there. Take that emotion, multiply it, add some Persian superstition regarding the dead, and you begin to appreciate how Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes may have felt in hearing this news. But here's the thing about Nehemiah. What's he doing? Well, I think he's playing on Artaxerxes' heartstrings. In the same way, remember Nathan and David and the whole story of Bathsheba and the adultery? Remember Nathan shares a story with David leading to his repentance? He tells a story about someone stealing a man's only lamb. He plays to his heart. That's when David goes, that guy, he deserves punishment. He's, he deserves death. And Nathan says to David, you're the man. And I think in a sense, in, in a sense, that's what Nehemiah is doing here. So Nehemiah responds, verse 4, or excuse me, the, the king responds in verse 4. What is your request? So I prayed to the God of the heavens. I, this is my favorite verse in chapter 2. I love this verse. Nehemiah, what do you want? And Nehemiah prays. <laughs> what kind of prayer? This is a one second shoot it up to heaven, oh God, help me prayer. This is the prayer every guy prays before he asks a girl out, right? Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, help me. This is, this is that prayer, and I love it. I love it. I love it's recorded here. Nine prayers in Nehemiah. This one second one is one of them. And I love it because I pray like this at times, and I'm sure you do too. Uh, back in, I remember in, back in 2012, when I was pastoring Westside uh, Church, uh, we had an opportunity of moving downtown and taking ownership, purchasing a uh, arts club theater. Um, big deal, lots of stuff going on, lots of miracles. 
needed to happen. Um, and when it looked like it was getting closer to going through, one of the, the tasks I had was, was fundraising, because I don't know if you know this, real estate in Vancouver is expensive. And so we had to fundraise some money. And so there was a woman who attended the church who was the assistant uh, of a very prominent businessman, had a lot of bucks, has a lot of bucks in the city of Vancouver. And so I went to her, I said, is it possible that I could have FaceTime with, with him? And she said, well, I'll try to set something up. And so that day took place, it was set up. And so I went to, to their offices, I sat down in her office, he joined the meeting, just the three of us, and he asked the question, just like Artaxerxes, what do you want? And so I prayed. <laughs> a one second, shoot it up to heaven, prayer. And I said, a million and a half dollars. And he said, you can now leave, wait outside. So I left, waited outside, my armpit sweat was in my shoes at this point. <laughs> and I walked out into a room, I looked out this, this nice window overlooking, overlooking Stanley Park. If you think you have a nice office, there are nicer ones, I guarantee you. <laughs> so he called me back, called me back, went into his office and he said to me, I'm gonna give you the money. But I'm not gonna give you the money because I like you. I'm gonna give you money because the money because I like my assistant and she likes you. <laughs> to which I responded, praise God for your assistant. <laughs> but also praise God, praise God that he answers one second prayers. Nehemiah's prayers answered here and he continues to answer prayers. Our lives shouldn't be built on one second prayers. But isn't it great that God still hears them? There are seasons in our lives where we have to pray for four months and fast and wait. And then there are moments like these, and both are, both are vital. After praying this prayer, Nehemiah answers the king starting in verse 5. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may rebuild it. The king, with the queen seated beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when, when will you return? So I gave him a definite time and it pleased the king to send me. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress, the city wall, and the homes where I will live. The king granted my request, for the gracious hand of my God was on me. I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. Stop there. In these verses, we are again reminded that Nehemiah didn't waste the wait. He had obviously given time and thought to what lay ahead and what needed to happen. I mean, just notice what he does in these verses. First, he gave the king a definite time of return. He had done the math beforehand, and it pleased the king. Second, he asked the king for letters, really important, that would provide him safe passage. You need to understand, we need to understand that Persia did rule the world, and, but that didn't mean just because you had the favor of the king that you had the favor of all people. 
Third, he asked for another letter written to Asaph, the keeper of the forest at the time, to give Nehemiah lumber to rebuild. And then last, the king himself sent officers, infantry, and cavalry with Nehemiah. This is amazing stuff coming from the king, especially a Persian king to a Jewish exile. Like, it makes no sense. So why did he do it? Well, you could say, well, Norm, you talked about how Nehemiah tugged on his heartstrings about the burial plots being in ruins, so perhaps that's the reason why. Yeah, maybe. You could also say Nehemiah must have proven to be a loyal servant, and he had earned the trust and the affection of the king, so maybe that too. But then you could look at verse 9 and repeat what Nehemiah says there. The king granted my request for the gracious hand of my God was on me. No doubt about that. But which is it? Heartstrings, trust, built up, favor, affection, or because the gracious hand of God was on him? Well, the answer is all of them. I borrow this thought, but what we have in these verses is a marriage, a display of the marriage between God's sovereignty and human involvement. Nehemiah had done what for four months? He had prayed, he had waited, he had planned, and he'd readied himself. Built upon, I don't know how many years of loyal service to King Artaxerxes. All vital all things that we need to learn from and can learn from, and yet God granted Nehemiah's request, excuse me, the king granted Nehemiah's request for the gracious hand of God was on him. Solomon, the wisest man who has ever lived, writes the following. You can read it behind me. Proverbs 21.1, a king's heart is like, the ch like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. So God's hand was on Nehemiah. But we can't again discount what Nehemiah had done in partnership as well. There are many examples in the Bible that display the marriage between God's sovereignty and our involvement, but one that pops up in the New Testament is seen in something Paul writes to Timothy. Again, you can read this behind me. Paul writes, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Then he adds this, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. I take you here because of the spotlight that this verse brings on, on the role of God's sovereignty in the bringing of someone to Jesus. Because Paul doesn't pray that God would grant forgiveness. He prays that God would, would grant repentance leading to forgiveness. Like that's God's sovereign rule. Which, you don't, you, don't, you don't disagree with that idea. If you've ever prayed for someone who doesn't know Jesus to come to know Jesus. Because what you're praying for is God's interference in their lives. You need it. We need it. So God, interfere with them. Lead them to yourself. Change their hearts. Change their disposition. God's sovereign rule over us. But we can't discount what, what Paul writes before. 
he makes it clear that our disposition and interaction with people matters too. We're to be gentle. We're to be patient. We're to be enduring. It's a partnership. It's, it's a marriage. And as, I've said a, as I said a couple of weeks ago, the question isn't, can't God do whatever he plans and purposes without us? Of course. He's almighty, which means he has all might. He lacks nothing. He's almighty. But with all due respect, it's the wrong question. <coughs> the right question is, how has he chosen to do what he plans and purposes? And the answer, Midtown, please hear this. His answer is through us and through people like Nehemiah. God doesn't need us. But he chooses to use and work through us. Which leads to the big white elephant in the room. What's the big white elephant in the room? Don't say me. What's the big white elephant? What's the big white elephant in the book of Nehemiah? Do you know what it is? I mean, it's a huge white elephant in the book of Nehemiah. I mean, it's so obvious we miss it, I think. The big white elephant in the book of Nehemiah is that God chose a wine taster. Of all people, a wine taster to rebuild the walls and the homes and the people of Jerusalem. Probably half buzzed all the time, right? Probably smelled like Chardonnay in the morning, right? He chose a wine taster, not a priest, not a prophet, not a politician, not royalty. He, he chose a sommelier to, to get things just so before the coming of Jesus. It, it is crazy that Nehemiah is about a wine taster doing this. But, think about it this way, <coughs> a wine taster who had the ear of the king. He, he literally would have stood at his right hand while the king ate. And, it seemed, he had pleased the king in his service and had obviously learned things over the years. Think about the things he learned, like, what papers would I need to travel from here to there safely? What kind of resources are out there and who do I need to talk to? What kind of papers would I need from the king to garner these resources? Things like that to complete the job. That kind of wine taster. One book to the right of Nehemiah is the book of Esther. The book of Esther is about a Jewish queen, Esther, married to a pagan king. And in the book of Esther is a very well-known statement given to Esther by her uncle Mordecai. You can read it behind me. He says to her, who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Go back one book. This is Nehemiah's such time. See, I love that Nehemiah isn't a priest or a prophet. And I love that God called him to leave his cushy job and to move a thousand miles away and enter a time, as we will see, of great danger and of great protection too, to complete the job that God called him and had chosen him for. I love that. That kind of story, man, I love. I love that kind of story. But his call also reminds us that God isn't hesitant to call us away from comfort and home, and career, 
and status and move us to a place of challenge and even danger for the sake of his people and his kingdom. And he's not opposed to calling wine tasters and tax collectors and fishermen and shepherds to lead great movements either. And if he's not opposed to calling people like that, then my guess is he's not opposed to calling plumbers and, and teachers and accountants and, and homemakers and computer programmers and doctors and dentists and retirees and students. Today, for such a time as this, I mean, who knows, right? Who knows? This week, Wednesday, first midweek gathering that we're, I'll give you more information on the back end. I'm going to talk more about call. I don't have time to go deep into call. Talk, call, call, call. Do I have a call? Do you have a call? How, how do we discern this? What does that mean? So come back on Wednesday, and uh, it'll, it'll be helpful to you, I, I pray and hope. Back to the text, though. Verse 10. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. This is the first hint of trouble in Nehemiah. Um, we're going to come back to this uh, when we show up, um, but let me at least, or excuse me, show up when I end things, um, but let me at least say this at this point. When God calls us to something, that doesn't mean there won't be opposition along the way. Now, I know we know that. We know that, right? We go like that, but boy, we forget it in the middle of it really quickly. The opposition here is from without. Like I said, we'll come back at the end of chapter two, these uh, individuals. Sadly, however, opposition hereafter, or at least later, in addition to this, without opposition, people with outside or outside of the, of the people of God, the opposition later comes from people within which, personally speaking, is worse, I feel. Um, nothing worse than being opposed by your own team. But we'll come back to that in the weeks ahead. Verse 11 and 12. After I arrived in Jerusalem and had been there three days, I got up at night and took a few men with me. Just stop there. A thousand mile, four month journey, on foot, camel, which Nehemiah takes three days to rest and recover from. He does the exact same thing Ezra does in the book of Ezra. You can read about that in chapter 8 of Ezra, verse 32. Why, why do I stop here? I stop here because you know it's okay to rest, right? I mean, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I think this is more than a throwaway piece of information. We need times to rest and recover. We went through a series on the encounters of Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus in the encounter with Jairus' daughter did the first thing he said after raising her from the dead? Get her something to eat. Jesus knows we're physical beings. There's times in the Gospels where the disciples are sent out for ministry. They come back and Jesus rescues them. He says, you haven't had time to rest, leisure, and eat. You see, we're made of dust. And even though we sometimes forget we are, God never does. 
to, to lead out of a place where we aren't rested is almost impossible to, to lead well in. Tough to lead well when you're tired. Everything gets heightened. We get irrational. We fly off the handle and are increasingly unable to cope. Nehemiah would have been of no good if he wasn't rested, but here's the thing, so to us. So to us. After three days of rest, let's pick things up in verse 12, halfway through. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I went out at night through the valley gate toward the serpent's well. It's an unfortunate name. You could also translate it dragon's well. And it even gets worse. And the dung gate. That's great. Can I live near there? Dragon's well, serpent's well, and a dung gate. Not good. And I expected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. I went onto the fountain gate. That's nicer. And the king's pool. Better. But farther down, it became too narrow for my animal to go through. So I went up at night by way of the valley and I inspected the wall. Then heading back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews priests, nobles, officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. So I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what, and what the king had said to me. They said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do this good work. Man, it's awesome. Really quickly, what does this section of text encompass? Well, this is reconnaissance work. It begins with inspection. Up to this point, Nehemiah, he had only heard about what was going on in Jerusalem, but now he has a chance to check things out for himself. He goes at night, and he takes a few select men with him, but he tells no one what he had come to do. Why? Well, we can guess. So let me propose some ideas. I think he goes at night first, not so much out of protection's sake or for protection's sake, but to not rouse suspicion and questions from the crowd. And he takes only a select few men with him, possibly because perhaps he sensed this handpicked group would buy in and partner with him when he shared the plan. And I don't think he shared the plan at the beginning because number one, he didn't know the scope of the job. He had to figure that out. And two, he didn't have a sense of the people yet. See, the people in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem at that time included some people who came with Nehemiah, but many of them had been there already for years. But the walls and the homes hadn't been rebuilt. Why? What's wrong with this group of people? Could they be trusted? Did they have what it took to help? What did Nehemiah, what did Nehemiah need to do to raise them up. And this people group included the officials and the nobles and the priests. And three, up to this point, God had put this idea on Nehemiah's heart alone. And I think this evening reconnaissance was a time of discernment and reflection before bringing other people in. I would sum up verses 12 to 18 as it's a display of wisdom and godly patience. But when the time came to share in verses 17 and 18, he, number one, had a clear scope of the job. He knew what lay ahead. And second, he took ownership. When he said, come, let us 
rebuild Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a disgrace. And three, and most importantly, he was quick to give all glory to God in sharing how God's hand had been on him. Why is that important? It's important because what Nehemiah is saying to this group is the success of this job doesn't rest on me. (coughs) Not my skills, not my passion, not my commitment, but on God's ongoing favor and grace. That's true with us as well. All of this strengthens those who are there and they commit themselves, as the end of verse 18 puts it, to this good work. I need to wrap up. As we begin to wrap up, I said last week, if you were here and you remember this, that the book of Nehemiah isn't isn't a story primarily about the rebuilding of, of the walls and homes of Jerusalem, but a story about a man in community rebuilding a people under the word of God, to the glory of God, to be a light to the nations. And therefore, it's a depiction in story form, in narrative form, about the call of the church. If that's the case, and I believe it is, then what do we, the church, learn from chapter 2? Well, at the very least, we learn that from within God's people, God calls individuals to specific work, but he never calls us alone. Not, not only aren't we to go it alone, but God doesn't call us alone, and we each don't have a small little Holy Spirit in us. You know that, right? There's one spirit. And so if the Spirit is moving in you, leading you to something, then you can be guaranteed he is moving in others to bring confirmation and or involvement in that in which God has laid on your heart. We also learn from chapter 2 the importance of the wait. Waiting upon the Lord is as much a spiritual discipline as prayer and fasting. It's those who wait upon the Lord who are who are strengthened, but when the wait is over, be prepared and be ready to go. And and therefore, don't waste the wait. And this goes for the church as much as the individual. Some of you have big goals and wants and dreams in your life. Some of you, especially who are younger, you're in your teens, your early college years, one day, hey man, I wouldn't mind being married. Well, what are you doing? Are you preparing for that? What do you spend your time thinking about? Because what you do now, you bring into your marriage. You bring it in. Don't waste the wait. What are you doing that's going to make you a good husband or wife? Some of you want to have kids. Fantastic. Maybe God will bless you with kids. What are you doing in the wait? Some of you want to be leaders. You want to do some things. What are you doing now? Don't waste the wait. It's not a toggle switch where you just click it on one day and we go, hey, I know exactly what to do. You need residency before you cut. So don't waste the wait. We see that here. We also get a glimpse of the importance of rest in chapter 2. Right? Perhaps some of us, truth be told, if you're really honest with yourself, would say, I've been a little lazy maybe in my life over the last little while. But then for some of us, maybe... 
Maybe what we really need and be, would be well served with is three days of rest. The Bible gives you permission. You have a verse. We are also once again reminded of God's sovereignty and providence in chapter 2. That, that it must be God who grants us success, regardless of how much we pray and plan and prepare. To God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, as we saw in our study of Ephesians. After all, if God doesn't build the walls, if God doesn't build the church, his laborers lay labor in vain. Additionally, we've been reminded that even though God calls us to something and others with us and pours out his grace and favor and protection on us, it won't mean the absence of opposition, which is how our chapter ends. Look at the last two verses. When Sanballat, we saw him in verse 10, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and another one, Geshem the Arab, heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? To which the answer is no. I gave them this reply. The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start building, but you have no share, right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. Faithfulness in the Christian life. Faithfulness to the plans and purposes and designs of God will certainly, we can be sure, lead, time, lead to times of mockery and derision and despisement and false accusation. I say that because Jesus promised it. Saying, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets, like the minor prophet Nehemiah, who were before you. As someone said, there will always be enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent until the second coming of Jesus. We can be sure of it. But this should also remind us that we don't wage war against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities in the heavenly places. And therefore, it should remind us that we need to daily put on the spiritual armor that is ours in Christ. And we should follow the, follow the model, the example of Nehemiah and pray much, and follow the model and example of Ezra and dedicate ourselves to the knowledge of God's word. They provide the strength. They provide the hope for victory. And lastly, as I close, and we move to a time of response, there's one final beautiful thing that chapter 2 reminds us of, and that is the better Nehemiah to come. A Nehemiah, the second, the better, who, like the first, left the comfort and opulence of his home and traveled far off to rebuild a people broken down by sin and burned by the heavy burden of religiosity and legalism, legalism coming by way of their priests and officials. He, like the first Nehemiah, was also acquainted with sorrow. And he was a cupbearer too. willing to drink a cup of death 
that his father, whom he served at his pleasure and his right hand, gave him to drink. And drink it he did in our place. And you know what? He was laid to rest for three days. But after three days, he rose and he went out and in doing so, he conquered the dragon. And he invites us oh, to be cleansed from all the dung that our sin brings with it. Oh, how gracious is the hand of the God of the heavens of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Nehemiah is all over. No, Jesus is all over Nehemiah too. Would you stand as we respond? Oh, Jesus, we love you. Love your word. Love your word. Thank you for the things revealed in it, Jesus. Thank you for leaving the opulence of your kingdom and coming down to us, tabernacling with us, the true temple, the better temple. Thank you for coming, but not only coming, but becoming a servant, a servant obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Thank you. Thank you. I, I thank you for rescuing us, I thank you for building us up. I, I, I thank you for conquering the dragon. I thank you for cleaning us from all the crud that comes with our sin and our practices of rebellion. I thank you for it all. We worship you. We bless you. We thank you. Ah, oh, Father, I, I pray now that as we respond to your word that has been given to us by your Holy Spirit, that, that we would have a, a desire to not only hear from you, but you would change our hearts to trust that whatever you call us to is best because you're a good God. It's best for us. You're not holding out on us. It's our enemy that dupes us into thinking we're missing out. You have what is best for us because you love us. How much? to the point where your son died for us. How much more than now will you give us good things? If you didn't withhold Jesus, why would you hold, withhold good things to us thereafter? If you sent Jesus when we were enemies, how much more that, that now we are children will you give us all things? So may we trust you, stir our affections for you. May we, as we remember you, Jesus, by way of this common meal, oh, I just pray that we'd walk out of here deeper in love with you, Jesus, and that you'd be honored and glorified in this time. And I pray for these things in Jesus' great name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to mtownchurch.ca.